Well, it was quite some journey last year, wasn't it? I don't know about you, I felt very um, privileged to be able to go through God's Word together as we did as a congregation. It was um, a very uh, special time, uh, I think. There was lots that came out, I think, individually, and I think for us as a congregation as well. Um, one of the things that really just, just struck me was the, the various themes that just came, seemed to keep coming back around, um, not through design on my part, um, but just as the Lord was working through us. And um, you just see the enormity of God's plan um, and the, the way that God had crafted down through the ages everything that he'd done. Uh, and then into the New Testament, particularly looking at the, the reoccurring theme of the rewards that are promised uh, to those that are his. Um, and it's an incredible situation that God has chosen to work in that way, that we've been given our salvation. It's a free gift, and we know. But there is still yet rewards to be had. Um, and there is an expectation on us as believers to live in a way that is honouring to God, and in a way that then we will uh, acquire those rewards, we'll lay up that treasure in heaven as uh, is put in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I think those those thoughts and some of those things probably will still, as we go through this year, uh, wherever the Lord leads us, will continue to uh, um, just reveal more of themselves to us as the Lord just speaks through his word. Um, but I think it was a really very special time for us. Uh, this year, at the moment, I'm not sure what book we're going to go into. Uh, we're going to start a, a series this morning, which I'll talk a bit more about in a moment, um, just for three weeks, um, just to, to kind of get us into the new year. But also, uh, something the Lord really laid upon my heart at the, the end of last year. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, first of all, would you turn to the book of Corinthians? And a well-known portion, of course, but to First Corinthians in chapter 13. And the scriptures will be on the screen, but it's uh, probably good to read through in your own Bibles as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and picking up at the first verse. And Paul speaking to the church in Corinth there. So after speaking about various spiritual gifts and various things within the church, he then says, Though I speak with the tongues of men, and of angels, but have not love. I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. 
When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. This is our hearts. Father, as we begin this year, as we begin this study, looking at love, Lord, speak to us clearly, we pray through your word. What we have just read is staggering. As we consider that which love accomplishes, that which love has accomplished, and Lord, we see how it should apply to our own lives. Father, we pray you challenge us. We pray you speak to us clearly and draw us closer to you. Father, we pray that you would give us an understanding of the incredible love that you have for us. Help us to comprehend. And Lord, help us in return to love you. And Father, help us to learn to love each other. That we may be a witness and our lives may be living epistles for your glory. Lord, we just commit this time of study and the days ahead into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is start a a series just looking for three weeks. Looking at the whole idea of love. There is so much in that portion we've just looked at from Corinthians and we're going to come back to that um, over the next couple of weeks and we'll explore a bit more in detail some of the things that are there, some of the themes that are laid down for us. Um, We're told that love is a more excellent way. All those other things that were listed, they're going to pass away but love is going to carry on. Now, the way we're going to break this down is quite simple. We're going to look at the first session this morning. We just talk a little bit about the Father's love for us. And it should be familiar territory, and yet we may see things that we've not really looked at in that way before. Uh, next week, what we're going to do is move on and just look at our love for our Heavenly Father. And then we're going to conclude and look at our love for one another. But what we're going to see is that these three things are a crescendo. They build to that kind of third point of our love for each other. That's what God is really working towards. That's what he's wanting uh, from each and every one of us. But we've got to realize that our love for each other isn't something we can just manufacture. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. He says that uh, God will put us amongst people with whom we have no natural affinity. And I think that's very true. You know, you, you think of the kind of clubs in the world and so on, and you end up with all sorts of people, but they tend to be a particular type of people that will go to one particular club or another particular group or organization or whatever. When it comes to church, we're in a real mixed bag, aren't we? I mean, just, just look around. I mean, we're all very different, very different characters. We've got very different interests, different likes, different hobbies and so on. You know, and if you try and love each other, out of some sort of natural inclination, some desire to um, be kind of magnanimous towards one each other, or uh, that, that's of idea. You're going to fail. We're not going to succeed in that. So we've got to realise that the love that we're talking about here is not something that's just just the result of human affection. This is something that is spiritual. 
It's something beyond that which the world knows. And this is the first thing we've got to try and address. Because we think of love in the way the world thinks of love because it's so often thrust upon us that way. So when we're talking about love, we've got to realize that we're not talking about that which the world knows. This is something very, very different. And the love that we are to have for one another can only come from God. And so the problem is, if we don't really have a right relationship with God, we can't love one another. In fact, one of the verses that we'll be looking at next week speaks of the fact that if we don't love each other, how can we say we love God? You know, if we say we love God who we can't see, then how can we say we love each other who we do see? And there'll be a number of challenges that we'll be looking at uh, next time. So... And again, backing that up, our love for God the Father doesn't come out of a desire in our natural, fleshly, human um, minds, whatever, to, to just love God. It's something that has to be implanted in us, input in there by, by the Father himself. You know, we have no capacity to really truly love God in a way that is honouring to God. You see, anything that we would run attempt, we would fail, we'd fall short. It's very similar and analogous to the example we see, and we've talked about this before, of the, the worship um, that we see um, defined for us in, in the book of Leviticus. You know, there was a particular type of worship. God was going to kindle the fire, and that fire was going to be used to burn up the sacrifices, to offer the worship to God. Now, we find that Nahab, Nadab and Abihu come along, and they decide they're going to start their own fire. But it wasn't God's fire. God's very cross. They're both put to death as a result of it and so on. The point is quite simple. That if we are to worship God, it can't come out of a well-meaning desire within us to love God. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit doing something in us that is not natural. And that's how we worship God. And our worship shouldn't be swayed by you know, having great lighting or a great band or a great environment or all those kind of things, heating, you know, be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, all of those things, sometimes they can help, of course they can. But so many churches function around getting the right kind of environment and then we can worship God. Let's get the right kind of intensity and so on. That's not real worship. Real worship is that which is kindled in our hearts by the fire of the Holy Spirit. And it's the same with love. You know, our love for God the Father won't come out of a a New Year's resolution to try and love God more this year. That that won't work. Our love for the Father is something that has to be kindled by the Holy Spirit. Because our hearts naturally are like stone. You know, and even once we're born again, this is why Paul in Romans 12 says we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Basically, Paul says you've got to start to think differently. That's step one. But then when we try to actually put these things into action, we find that we don't have the resource there to do it. And so we have to draw on God. We have to go to God. And God then allows us, because it's through his Holy Spirit, the ability to worship God, to love God, in a way that God deserves to be loved and should be loved. Everything that we do, all our good intentions, will just fall short. But all of that then comes from where we're going to start this morning, which is looking at the Father's love for us. Because if we understand, even just to a small degree, God's love for us, that will be the mechanism that the Holy Spirit will use to kindle that response, that right response of love in our hearts to the Father, which in turn will then allow us to love other people 
with, as, again, Oswald Chambers says, we have no natural affinity. People who naturally we may not choose to love. But again, this is not a worldly thing. This is a, a spiritual thing. David, in First uh, Chronicles 29 when he was offering up all the, uh, or praising God and thanking God for all the things that had been submitted and um, brought for the uh, building of the temple, makes this statement, he says, all things come from you and of your own do we give you. Well, that can't be truer than in the regard to love. You see, love comes from God and it's of that which God gives us that we just give back to him. So the first place we have to start is understanding God's love for us. And of course, probably the greatest verse in the Bible in terms of, uh, um, certainly one of the most well-known verses, but in regard to love, is John 3.16. And we'll look at verse 17 as well. And we just read, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be Saved. You see, this is God's plan. This is God's purpose. You know, we looked earlier, we talked about the fact that the opening verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's plan, right from that moment, was to have a people that would walk with him, that would be his. You know, it's an interesting study. You know, there's, there's kind of questions sometimes about um, Allah and God. And some people will say, well, Allah and God are one and the same. That's not true. They're, they're, they're not. And sometimes I, I tease some of the Muslims I get to speak to uh, when they start to speak about God. I say, which God are you speaking to? Your God or my God? And they go, oh, no, 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 it's one of the same. No, it's not. Allah is very different. And one of the, 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 the key differences is that the Bible tells us that God is love. God is love. Now, that can't be true of Allah because Allah is on his own. Therefore, he doesn't have the capacity in that sense to love. Prior to anything being created, love can only exist between one, well, between more than one, if I may put it this way, entity. But of course, God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, truly can be loved because he's Father, Son, and Spirit. God is in not, in not, God is not in need of anyone else to be able to love. But Allah, in the context that um, the Islamic world would hold him, is not in a position where he's able to say, I am love. Because he has no one to love. He's, he's in need of something else to be able to love. So there's a very clear, distinct difference between the God of the Quran, Allah, and the God of the Bible. So, God truly is love. This verse, we looked at this when we went through John's Gospel, but I love this breakdown because it just helps to emphasize this well-known verse that so often we kind of get very familiar with. But God, for God, it starts, who is the greatest being beyond anything. I mean, anything that we can possibly think or conceive of, God, the greatest being, so, which is the greatest degree, loved, the greatest affection, the world which is the greatest object of love that he gave was the greatest act possible. His only was the greatest treasure. Begotten, that's the greatest possible relationship. Son, that's the greatest gift. The whosoever, that's the greatest company, believes 
as the greatest trust in him which is the greatest object of faith should not perish which is the greatest deliverance but have the greatest assurance everlasting the greatest promise life the greatest blessing it's kind of simple in a way, but it just helps to underline just how wonderful that verse is, how every word there is so important. But let's just look at that verse again, because we often speak of God's love, and automatically we think of Jesus. We think of Jesus' love. We think of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and so on, and that's right and proper and all good that we do that. But this verse says, for God so loved the world. You see, it's God the Father who has this incredible love for us. We kind of, in a sense, feel comfortable thinking about Jesus' love for us. But this verse is telling us it's God the Father who loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. This is a God who the Old Testament tells us is a just God, a righteous God. And yet he so loved the world that the only way that he could save humanity, redeem man to himself, was by sending his own son. But because God loved the world so much, he said he gave his only begotten son. But again, nobody is going to be forced into a relationship with God unless they want to. This is a, a, a by acceptance only invitation. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then we're told again, For God sent not his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, this is God that's initiating these actions. And we're kind of familiar with the idea that Jesus was willing to go. And often we have that picture. Um, Spurgeon used this and various other people have used this idea of this kind of council in heaven with all the angelic beings gathered round and the question being posed God saying you know allow me just to ask you a question we have a problem mankind has rebelled and sinned but I love them how can we rescue them who would go and die in their place to pay for their sin because the penalty for sin was death and you know Spurgeon talks about Gabriel you know sitting there silent not being able to utter a word, knowing that he wouldn't be able to meet the requirement, the demands, to pay for the sins of the whole world. And every other angelic being around the throne, just sitting there, dumbfounded, not knowing what to say. And then finally, Jesus steps forward and says, I'll go. You know, and we're familiar in a sense with Jesus making that sacrifice, but we forget sometimes, possibly, the sacrifice of the Father. You know, think of course of Abraham and Isaac, that situation we have on Mount Moriah when Abraham is to offer up his son. How it must have hurt him. I mean, in the type, in the picture there, it's three days from the point that Abraham receives the command to go and offer up your son, your only son Isaac, whom you lovest, and it's the first time love's mentioned in the Bible, by the way. And, and go to this, this mountain that God would show him. And so, obviously, they make the journey. And we have that analogy between the, with the three days. And some commentators have said it's as if Abraham died at that point. Part of Abraham died. It's as if Isaac was dead at that point. And it's not until three days later that God says to Abraham, no, don't kill your son. And he stops 
this situation being being brought to a conclusion. And, and he allows effectively Isaac to be brought back to life, as it were, in that sense, in a figure, in a type. But you think of Abraham as a father, how he must have hurt allowing his own son. But you see, the reason that God did that for us was because of his great love for us. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God, I think they are probably two of the most important words, I think we said this as we went through the Bible last year, looking at Ephesians, two of the most important words in the Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us. You see, this again is initiated by the Father. You know, those two words again, but God. Firstly, there's that but. You know, it speaks of our our condition, how we were dead in trespasses and sins. But then that word, but, it's a fantastic, in the context, a fantastic word, because it just says, wait a minute, that's not the end of the story. And the only word that would suffice following that is God. You know, any other created being, any other remedy you put there, doesn't meet the requirements. But God, together, that's our solution. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us. Again, the love that the Father has for you is beyond anything you have yet understood. Anything I've yet understood. And I hope as we just look at some of these verses this morning, just briefly, you just start to realise how much the one who created everything loves you. We read Isaiah 53 as part of our communion this morning. But notice what we're told here. We're talking again of Jesus being wounded for our transgressions and so on. But then we're told the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, laid on him, the Son, the iniquity of us all. The Father laid upon the Son the iniquity of all of us. So that we would then be pronounced clean. and So that we could have a right relationship with God. You know, often people make this, this wrong assumption that the God of the Old Testament is a very severe and um, dictatorial kind of God. And uh, is accused of genocide and all these kind of foolish notions because people just don't understand what the Bible says. But, you know, they make these comments and sometimes we can fall victim to that ourselves of thinking that, that God the Father is quite... Um, stern sometimes and yet of course God the son Jesus is the one who we love because Jesus is our savior but this morning I'm just trying to help us to see that God the father loves you we just say again God the father loves you the second part of this verse says yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him again trying to get our heads around that that God was pleased to lay upon his own son our iniquity because he loved you so much. First John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, In this was manifest the love of God toward us. And John's going to tell us now how we see, how, how, how did God demonstrate the love that he has toward us. It is because that God, again initiating the action, sent his only begotten son into the world 
that we might live through him. What a statement. And then, herein is love. This is love. This is real love. This isn't what the world thinks it knows about love. The world thinks it's an expert on love. The world knows nothing of love. This is love, is what John says. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's love. It's a love that we've never really fully understood or appreciated. This is love, that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I mean, often we talk about love having a cost attached to it. You know, real love does cost. Well, there's no greater cost than this, than God giving his son to be the payment in full for our sins. You see, God demonstrates his love here. It's not some... Declaration. God doesn't just say, I love you. God doesn't write it down for us in some nice little ode that we can read back and things. But God demonstrates his love. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.31, If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, whatever you're facing as you step out into 2015, God loves you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? First John 3 verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love. I mean, we just unpack that for a moment. What type of love, what, what manner, what magnitude of this thing that we refer to as love the Father has bestowed upon us Not just that he would send his son, but that we should be called the sons of God. That we should be given the place, the privileged position that Jesus had. As being the one who would inherit the rightful heir to all that is God's. That we've been given that place. Some Versions translated this as uh, the children of God. That's fine, I understand that. That's not a problem. But really in the context, it should be sons. Because the son was the one in the Hebrew culture who would be the firstborn son, who would be the one who would inherit. Certainly the, the larger portion would go to the firstborn son. And that is what's being said here. You know, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be given that place of the firstborn. You think of... Um, Esau and uh, Jacob and the fact that Jacob you know, desperately tries to win that birthright doesn't he? Because he recognises the importance of that privileged position of being the firstborn we see also with Joseph's children Ephraim and Manasseh and how Jacob even though failing of sight switches his hands around and prays for the the younger over the elder. And Joseph's quite upset about it. But Jacob says, I know what I'm doing. Laying that privilege of the firstborn. And we see a number of those examples in scripture. Well, John is telling us, just think about this. God, because he loves you so much, has given you the privileged position of being the firstborn. The one who will inherit. That's incredible. That means you are in the the place as Jesus is positionally to inherit all that is God's. We can't even get our heads around that. 
I mean, people in this world get excited about winning the lottery. They get excited about all sorts of silly things. Now, of course, if you won the lottery, I'm not saying you'd go, it doesn't mean anything. No, I mean, you'd probably be reasonably pleased. But, you know, those things can affect here and now. There's an there's a American speaker by the name of Francis Chan. I may have used this example before. And he gets a long, long piece of rope. And he's kind of just pulling it through his hands. And just imagine rope going all the way over to the wall and back again and everything else. And at the end of the bit of rope, there's a little bit of red tape. And he says, that little bit of red is your life here and now on earth. He said, and the crazy thing is that people spend all of their effort and their time and their thoughts focusing on this little bit of time. And yet we've got all of eternity. That's where we should be thinking. That's where our minds should be. We should be laying up treasure in heaven. We should be thinking of what is to come. Well, what manner of love has been bestowed upon us that we should inherit in the ages to come all that God has for us? You know, this, if I may say this reverently, goes way beyond salvation. Because salvation is this incredible gift. But God has given us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the riches in Christ Jesus Ephesians 2 says this this verse we looked at briefly earlier but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us even when we were dead in sins has quickened us together with Christ by grace are you saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus again just speaking of our position what a statement. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Again, speaking of the rest of this bit of rope, the rest of eternity, not just now, not just this small little moment that we focus on. That in the ages to come, He might show God the Father loves you so much that in the ages to come, he wants to show you just what he's got planned. The exceeding riches of his grace. This is the God who's created everything. Who's created billions and billions of stars just because he could. You know, we look up at at the stars sometimes. You get a a night, maybe if you're out in the countryside, you look up and there's not so much light pollution around. And you can just be amazed as you look at the stars. You know, there are billions of stars. Somebody once said that there's, you know, there's billions of stars for every single person on planet Earth if you were to have them and own them. That's just the ones we know about. We don't know about the ones we don't know about. And God just, you know, that that great line in, in the book of Genesis, he made the stars also. Oh yeah. It's just a a great comment that that, you know that God was making all of this for us. The new heavens, the new earth. I mean, it has been commented already, you know, that God spent six days making the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. He's been two thousand years preparing a home for us. What's that gonna be like? What is the new heaven and the new earth? What's the new Jerusalem? really going to be like. I mean, you get a glimpse as you look in Revelation. But you kind of get the impression that even there, words are just inadequate to express all that is yet ahead of us. Again, in the ages to come, God the Father, because he loves you, wants to show you the exceeding riches of his grace 
in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourself. Notice this, it's a gift of God. You know, as parents, some of you as parents would have had that joy and that pleasure, maybe not necessarily this Christmas, uh, for those of you with older, older children now, but when you had your, your children were younger, and certainly this Christmas we had it, those moments where it kind of brings a tear to your eye when you give your child a gift and they open it and they are just so excited. You know, it's, it's inexpressible, isn't it? As a parent, you'll know that, that kind of that real joy, that wonderful experience. Well, God the Father wants to give you gifts. That's incredible. By grace, you are saved through faith, not of yourself. Our salvation is a gift that God wants to say. Your sins are forgiven, totally cleansed, your conscience purged. What a gift. You see how it starts to trigger now the right response to God as we start to think. Just one more verse for this morning. Romans 5 verse 8. But God commends, God shows, demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, as we said earlier, God's love is not merely recorded in words or a book. It's demonstrated in deed. God put into action his love so that we would understand it. You know, somebody over the Christmas period I was talking to, I just asked the question, did Jesus have to die? Was there no other way that God could have done it? Well, it's a very difficult kind of question for us to try and wrap our heads around. An infinite God, is that the only way? Well, three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the question, Father, if there be any other way. And God has chosen this to be the only way. But one of the things that is clear through what God has done, through creating the world as it is, through the whole situation, God allowing us free choice, the Garden of Eden, the fall... Everything that then leads up to the cross. With Jesus coming as that sacrificial lamb to pay for our sins. All of that leads to one inescapable conclusion and that is that God loves us. Because God did this to demonstrate his love for us. You know, it may be, I don't know, it may be that God could have achieved atonement in another way probably not but this is way outside of our our realm of, of thinking this is god's domain but god chose to do what he did because it demonstrated his love for you and i just think about that that god's love is demonstrated because of what christ had to endure and go through for us so god allowed that to show us He loves us. Once again, God the Father loves you. Next week we're going to pick up from there and we'll talk about the appropriate response. How then are we to love God? This is our hearts. Father, we thank you for reminding us what we probably already knew but maybe didn't understand. That you love us. Father, you love us. And we thank you for that. Lord, let us not 
run forward from this point. Let's just spend a moment over the next day, the next week, just trying to understand that you love us. And you love us as we are. It was while we were yet sinners in that condition that you chose to demonstrate your love. Father, we thank you. Oh Lord, if you are for us, Heavenly Father, if you are for us, who can be against us? The omnipotent, the all-seeing, omniscient God loves us. Father, we thank you. And we thank you for Jesus.